I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. This has been a challenging time for central bankers. Inflation is at a 40-year high. The tool that central bankers have to combat this, raising interest rates, could bring about a recession. Rising interest rates could also threaten banks and financial institutions, and if these are imperiled, that too could lead to a recession. Higher interest rates also make government debt more expensive to service at a time when debt is already high in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Finally, the ongoing war in Ukraine presents its own set of economic challenges. Listeners to the podcast will recognize these challenges facing the United States. But less parochially, these challenges face other countries and regions as well. And today, I'm speaking with one of the leading policymakers outside of the United States, Philip Lang. Philip is the chief economist of the European Central Bank and a member of its executive board. He began these roles in 2019 after having served as governor of the Central Bank of Ireland beginning in 2015. Before that, Philip was a professor at Trinity College Dublin following a stint at Columbia University in New York. Philip, it's very good to have you as my guest on Econofact Chats. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here, Michael. So, Philip, let's start out with some basics. The European Central Bank is the central bank for 20 of the 27 members of the European Union. Why is there this pan-European institution when the United States, Great Britain, Japan, and other countries have their own independent central banks? So... I think the European Union, as you say, has 27 member countries, but very much the euro is the currency for the EU. So it is true not all countries are a member of the euro, but I do think uh, that the way to think about it is we do have a pan-European political framework, which is the European Union. And uh, rather than have 20 extra currencies in the world, uh, the decision now 25 years ago, is 25 years, since the euro started, what was that Europe would be better off with a single central bank making a, a single monetary policy for all of the member countries? And I think over these 25 years, um, uh, the case for that is, is, is getting stronger. Um, so, of course, Michael, the US is a very large continental sized economy. Japan is a continental sized economy. Uh, and of course, uh, the UK has a unique history. But from the point of view of Europe, even though it is an innovation, it is something unique in the world. Uh, you know, I think uh, these 25 years have shown uh, that this is uh, sustainable and it makes sense in a European context. How is the ECB set up to take into account different national preferences? That's a very interesting question, but I suppose I would challenge whether that's the way to think about uh, the price. The, the goal of central banks, which is price stability. So uh, all of the governing council members um, are there as Europeans. You leave your nationality at the door. 
So it is most definitely not set up to reflect differences in, in preferences uh, across countries, because I think all Europeans uh, want to see low and stable inflation. Um, but what is true and very, very explicit is the mentality has to be, you are there to serve the general European interest, not to represent any particular national point of view. And this reconciles with your original question, which is that uh, the only way to run a, a common currency is to focus on the overall picture, rather than to think of it as some kind of uh, bargaining among individual member countries. Well, before that, there was, um, of course, national currencies. Why did the euro area move from having their own national currencies to a single currency? And how did this come about? So this year, in addition to being 25 years of the euro, it's also 50 years since the end of the Bretton Woods system. And maybe on your uh, podcast, you've talked about that at some point. Uh, and really, if you like, it's not the case. Europe had a long history of each country running a separate monetary policy. And those years after 1973 through the early 90s demonstrated that essentially uh, two, two uh, systems do not work. Having systems of, of pegged exchange rates, uh, which are prone to occasional crises, and also having a system where every country makes its own decision in the context of trying to have a, you know, an integrated economy in Europe remember with open capital markets, open labor markets, uh, a single market for goods and services, the assessment was it was better to have a common currency uh, to, to uh, reinforce all, all these other dimensions where Europe was trying to act as one rather than act as, as uh, individual member countries. So really, uh, I think uh, now 25 years later, uh, this is, you know, in retrospect, um, becoming normalized, that, that it is in a European context, uh, a kind of a sensible approach to go. Of course, there was controversy about this decision beforehand and researchers, including yourself, looked to the United States as an example of a large area with a single currency. And there were some similarities, but also some differences. After 25 years, Philip, looking back at what people were writing in the late 90s or the early 2000s about the comparisons between the United States as a single currency and the euro area as a single currency. What have we learned and what modifications would you make to what people might have thought or you yourself even might have thought at the outset of the euro area? So I think that's a good question. And uh, the euro had definitely its test of fire uh, between the period of uh, 2008 really through uh, 2012, 2013, when we did have not just the global crisis, but then a Euro area sovereign crisis after that. And some of the main lessons, which would have, I think, been uh, identified as risk factors in the 1990s, uh, but were not implemented from word go, it is number one, it is if you do give up a, a, a national currency, you have to be take a lot less risk in terms of uh, financial systems and in terms of fiscal policy. So with financial systems, uh, that first decade of the euro before 2008, uh, there was very, uh, if you like, uh, we had a credit boom, a housing bubble in, in some European countries. 
which was basically, uh, if you like, amplified, I think, but by having um, uh, the same monetary policy for all member countries. And the answer to that, which has been implemented since then, is having very strict banking supervision and also what we call macroprudential policy. So essentially that to avoid having these national uh, credit booms and bust cycles in a, in a monetary union. Second, it, it is the case panics can happen. It can, I think, especially happen in a monetary union without, because, because you can move your, your, your money across borders without taking currency risk. And so for that reason, it's important to have uh, backstops. So the European stability mechanism was set up uh, to provide a, a fiscal backstop to the member countries. And in turn, with the ESM providing that backstop, the ECB has been able to develop its own um, backstops, the, fam the famously uh, Mario Draghi in 2012 saying, whatever it takes. And what we've seen since then is essentially a pretty stable Euro. So what I would say is uh, the first decade uh, did, did uh, lead, lead to, if you like, uh, problems that could have been foreseen. Um, um, uh, but the, with the very painful uh, episode from 08 to 2012, 2013, a lot of those lessons have been learned. And I think that these days, there's a recognition that this uh, common currency area can work uh, in a stable way. But I would also say uh, there's more to do. So we at the ECB would say there needs to be a deeper banking union, a deeper capital markets union, and it's not necessary to have a federal government the size of the US, but a bit more in terms of a central fiscal capacity can help. Let me emphasize, Michael, it's, it's not the case that the way to go is to say, well, the US is a perfect monetary union and all of the features of the US should be replicated, uh, but, but there's definitely some minimum uh, uh, requirements for, for a monetary union to work in a stable fashion. Yeah, it was very dramatic in the period from the financial crisis to about 2012 or 2013, people were talking about the possibility of Grexit, of Greece leaving. Many people, I guess myself included, thought that was a real possibility and probably would occur, but it didn't. And then, as you said, Mario Draghi said, whatever it takes, and that really changed the landscape in some very important ways. Um, and really, I think, moved, as you mentioned, the Euro to a different footing. So, Philip, I'd like to move from the history of the euro and the European Central Bank to some of the challenges it faces today. What's happened to inflation in the euro area over the past few, few years since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, say? Has the experience with inflation in the euro area been similar to that in the United States? What I would emphasize is uh, the origins of the inflation in the euro area are, are somewhat different. So we, we know in the US, I think by now there's a well understood narrative for the US, uh, where essentially the, the strong recovery uh, reinforced by, by significant uh, fiscal support in the US did lead to a strong uh, recovery in demand. So consumption, especially of goods in America, rose at far above the pre-pandemic level. We're only now returning to the pre-pandemic level of consumption and investment. So we have not had the uh, demand boom the US had, but the uh, supply side issues, supply bottlenecks at the global level played a role. 
Uh, and then uh, more recently, the, the kind of surge in energy prices, which was kind of compounded by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, was essentially a second inflation shock. But at this point, Michael, after the original shocks, I think both the US and in Europe now are very definitely in this second round. That it's not so much that the inflation is, uh, can be viewed as a shock, but, but now it's been uh, propagated that of course, uh, workers are looking to raise wages to compensate for the loss of living standards. Firms are trying to protect their, their profitability. Uh, and this is what, why monetary policy in Europe is now, uh, over the last year, has raised interest rates quite a bit. For the same reason, the Fed has, has uh, raised, no matter what the origin of inflation is, to get inflation back down in, in a timely manner does need a significant uh, monetary uh, policy response, which is what we've been doing. And I think it's really worth noting for our American listeners how much more the Ukraine shock hit Europe than the United States, because Europe is much more or was much more dependent upon energy from Russia. Um, and so as bad as things got in the United States, they're much worse in Europe, right? Yeah, so, so I think there's two levels of that. One is mechanical, uh, very high dependence on uh, oil and gas from Russia in, in the energy mix. And then second, uh, um, I'm sure you, your listeners will appreciate, Europe is a big net importer of energy. So when uh, energy prices go up, it's what's called a terms of trade loss. Uh, essentially, more money is flowing out of the European economy, which is essentially uh, you know, quite contractionary. So, so there's an income loss from that. Whereas in America, more or less, your, your energy balance uh, is, is, is reasonable. And in fact, I think uh, America has been exporting a lot of uh, liquid natural gas to Europe over the last year. So, so high energy prices affect the American economy very differently to the European economy. The Federal Reserve, Philip, as you well know, has been seen as late to the game in fighting inflation. In fact, in one of his recent news conferences, Jay Powell uh, quoted Frank Sinatra, the famous economist Frank Sinatra, when he said, regrets, I have a few. Um, is there a similar view that the ECB may have acted a little bit too slowly to attack inflationary pressures? I mean, uh, let me give two views on that. One is, um, uh, 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 with the benefit of hindsight, um, I think it's, it's fair to say, in, in terms of the philosophy, we definitely had a philosophy of we should wait until we're we're pretty sure that this inflation shock uh, is 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 going to be persistent and substantial before having a a full scale monetary response. Um, I think uh, any future review will, will probably look again at the balance between being preemptive and uh, being, uh, if you like, uh, uh, patient or persistent before responding. But I think the larger point is uh, the, the medium-term focus we have meant that, or means that, essentially even um, uh, with a response that, that was uh, cautious, uh, and, and gradual in, in its initial stages, uh, a lot can, can be achieved by essentially then moving uh, with determination once you start to move. So in other words, at the time, definitely the pros and cons were, okay, should we move early? 
but at the risk of, of overreacting what at the time could have turned out to be a, a temporary inflation shock. Or uh, should we wait? But recognizing if we do wait, then once we move, we will have to move uh, with conviction. And essentially that's what, what's happened. I think people who simulate alternative uh, histories of the last couple of years would, would not find at a macro level that that being uh, you know, one or two quarters uh, uh, delay in raising rates would make a massive difference to, to the inflation rate or, or to, to the overall outcome. So, so I, I do think uh, in our macro models, uh, you know, delays of, of uh, you know, one or two meetings, uh, one or two quarters do not make a massive difference. And again, maybe going back to the 1970s, which people carry around as their frame of reference, it, it was the, the kind of consensus that maybe monetary policy underreacted in the 1970s. That played out over many years. It was not a question of being you know, late by three months or six months. It was, it was basically underreacting on a persistent basis over, over several years. And that's not a scenario we have. So if you spent time in the United States, so you're familiar with the term Monday morning quarterbacking. Maybe that's a term you want to introduce into European policy circles as well. No, definitely a, a retrospective. I mean, but I think it's fair, honestly. I mean, of course, given the scale of the inflation we've seen, given the fact we did have, a, I think, an expressed philosophy of being uh, patient, if you like, before we would uh, uh, raise interest rates after many years of being uh, close to the lower bound. Uh, it, it's reasonable, but for others and for ourselves to ask questions, to do self-reviews. So, so I, I don't really, uh, uh, you know, I, I would differentiate between, if you like, uh, uh, casual Monday morning, Monday morning quarterbacking versus the fact that everyone should learn um, and review from these episodes. Well, you're particularly well-placed to review because before you went into public service, you were one of the world's leading researchers in international macroeconomics. Philip, in what way has your research and that of others contributed to your work as governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and now in your role at the European Central Bank? Maybe here I'll make a, some points. I mean, I, I, it's also true in the US, there's a, quite a flow from academia into, into policymaking. And uh, I think for a lot of reasons that, that, they, that, that can bring a lot to the policymaking process. I mean, essentially in the end, uh, for, for, for me and for other policymakers, uh, the information flow is really high. Every day, there's a lot of data releases, a lot of uh, internal analyses, uh, a lot of uh, pieces of information to analyze. So having, if you like, the frameworks that we developed as, ac as academics, I think is quite important in, in, in understanding and filtering what's important, what's not important. Let me also emphasize maybe uh, uh, empirical uh, work is quite important because many, many uh, conjectures, there's every day, there's many ideas. Most of the time, they, they're all, they all have some value. But what you have to think about is, okay, at a quantitative level, is, is this a material issue or is it an issue that's true, but it's so small that it's not gonna move the dials for policymaking. And so uh, I think the trend in, in macroeconomics over the course of my career and your career of having a lot more empirical work is really helpful for policymaking to really get a sense of, of what's important. 
Um, so I do think uh, that there's a, you know, that the skills that you learn in academia do carry over um, to a large extent uh, to, to, to the kind of basic analytical challenges uh, that, that are the main uh, challenges facing uh, central banks. Finally, Philip, it's been a really tumultuous few years and the world has faced huge challenges that probably inform your approach to your current job. What do you think you and other central bankers have drawn in terms of lessons from the events of the last few years? Again, when the history books are written, um, clearly there'd be a sharp distinction between years before the global financial crisis of what was called the great moderation, where everything looked fairly stable, fairly calm, inflation was not moving very much. And now we've got these uh, repeated uh, uh, shocks, very large scale uh, events, and maybe more to come. As you know, there's a lot of discussion of geopolitical developments, uh, to, to name one issue, digitalization, the climate transition. And essentially, uh, coming back to, to my work as a central banker, working out how to navigate that, to provide a, an important uh, foundational stability, which is price stability, uh, in a world which could be uh, unstable in many directions, uh, I, I think is very important. And what does that mean? It means uh, trying to be as alert as possible, as agile as possible. And uh, you know, I think we, we, we have an expressed philosophy, which lots of central banks have these days of being very much data dependent, rather than uh, believing that your, your projections for the next two years have 100% accuracy, being open-minded about what every day or every month can bring you in terms of uh, new developments in, in the economy is very important. And also to reconcile that with, with as you said earlier on, which is essentially monetary policy has to be forward-looking. You know, if we raise interest rates, uh, the interest rate increases we've made will affect the economy for the years to come. The peak of these uh, effects, you know, are only now working their way through the pipelines of the European economy. Uh, and so this is uh, essentially uh, the, the reconciliation we need to make, that, that you have a, a lot of shocks uh, hitting the economy. You have to understand the impact to respect what the data tell you. Under the hand, to, to combine that with recognizing that monetary policy works with a lag, and so you also have to be forward-looking and uh, judgment-based, model-based to a large extent. Philip, I know in your current position, you're incredibly busy and drawn in many ways in many different directions. And I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. I've always enjoyed our conversations and today is certainly no exception to that. So thanks very much. Thank you, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.